Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is a special bonus episode. It is a double review of both Hereditary and Midsummer. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue about the latest film releases coming to a theater near you. Um, this week, we did do that. We had a uh, review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but this is a special bonus episode. Um, as I said... Hereditary, Midsummer. Um, these are films that uh, one of them came out last year. Um, it made my top 10 list um, for the year. And uh, Stephen passed up on it because he was a little fraidy cat. Yep. <laughs> to be and, fair, it was not only being described as a horror that people loved, but a horror that they loved because it was really, really, really scary. Yeah. Um, so, that, yeah, the, that, it definitely gave some people some frights. And I'm still afraid of Pennywise. <laughs> Um, so we, that, that was back then midsummer was coming out this midsummer mm-hmm. and, uh, I was extremely excited to see it. It came out literally right as I was leaving for two weeks. Um, as soon as I got back, Steven was gone for like a week and a half or something. Mm. Uh, we kind of missed the window of doing it, but Steven did do his due diligence and, uh, watched both hereditary and midsummer and I couldn't inflict the psychological terror on him that he had to endure to see both those films and then just not do a review of it it was like something that we had to do um we're counting this as a bonus episode we're kind of breaking the format that we normally have um because we just wanted to have this conversation also was a thing that i think uh, i don't know if i texted you right after it or not but i was like you definitely have to watch both films because I don't know how we are going to talk about Midsummer without putting it in the context of Hereditary. Right. Um, so we definitely need to have a discussion of both. So we're doing that now. That was a long, lengthy introduction, but hopefully that prepares you for the type of conversation we are about to have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to clue you into how I watch these movies. I saw Midsummer first in theaters. Uh, Joanna wanted to see it, so we went together. I had mentally prepared myself for the absolute worst i knew i was going to be scared i knew i was like probably going to have an unpleasant time so i go in i have the theatrical experience that way i come home joanna has to work it's like a saturday afternoon and immediately i'm like fuck it i'm just gonna rip the band-aid off off right now so i go i'm sitting in the living room on my laptop watching hereditary under a blanket to block out any light because it's a dark movie. <laughs> and if you want to be able to see what is going on in the darkness, you can't have glare on the screen. Yeah. And yeah, I watched it all alone in my apartment about an hour after getting out of Midsummer. Okay. So for someone who that, does not like horror movies, that was quite a day to put myself through. That, that's much better than where I thought the story was going, which was you in headphones under a blanket. Joanna comes home. And she's like, what the fuck is Steven doing over a blanket? And then reaches over to touch your shoulder, and then you throw your laptop. Oh, I mean, I, I definitely, there was a moment when I saw her in the periphery, and it freaked me the hell out. <laughs> that, that definitely did happen. Um, and then I chased it all with Vox Lux, because <laughs> I figured I'll, I'll just watch all the movies that I've been kind of dreading for a while, like, in one run. Nice. Yeah. And I, mean, I, was, I was a very, very, very scared, scaredy cat. <laughs> Nice. Well, so I, I, I think, as I mentioned, we're probably going to have to break format to talk about this. I think what we should probably do, um, and you can veto me if you want, Stephen, is do a short spoiler-free discussion of Hereditary, short spoiler-free free discussion of um, Midsummer, 
and then do one kind of combined back and forth sort of comparison of the two films and talk about our thoughts um, with full-blown spoilers thrown out and just kind of like I think the real meat of how to discuss these two films um, requires comparing them in ways yeah. that are fully spoilers. So, yeah. so uh, I, I think the the spoiler-free parts can be quite short for both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it yeah. Should, should be okay. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and do that um, for old time's sake. Let's take a listen to the trailer for Hereditary and then come back with that sort of mini-review. Come on, Peter. There's your suit. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. And she wasn't altogether there. At the end. any more stress on my family. All right, so that was the trailer for Hereditary. It is sort of the story, if I can remember it, <laughs> of a family who has had some sort of shit going on. Um, the relationship through, I guess, the generations has not exactly been um, the strongest and the most loving. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of about um, grieving and uh, strange happenings uh, surrounding this family. Yeah. <laughs> That's... I guess I'll say it. Yeah. Um, Stephen Miller, what did you think of Hereditary? Uh, so I remember when we reviewed The Babadook, my problem with it was that everyone was describing it as if it were like a classic, amazing horror movie. And to me watching it, it just didn't have that spark. Like it still felt derivative. Hereditary is the movie that I think everyone else thought uh, The Babadook was. Like this is a movie that the moment I started watching it, Something about Ari Aster's style, his way around a camera, his way of building tone, just made me feel like, oh, I'm in the hands of someone who knows exactly how to make me feel whatever the hell they want. Um, and I think the movie does nail that for the whole runtime. I think, as will become a theme in our discussion of these movies, 
what I like most about Ari Aster is not horror, but it's everything else around the horror. Yeah. Here, the everything else is grief, and in particular, grief as it is kind of passed down like a family heirloom. Um, the way it like weighs on people and weighs on places and makes them become suffocating and terrifying. And I think this movie, with all props to Tony Collette, I think, does such an amazing job of just inhabiting the like suffocating nature of grief um you are really watching a person unravel and the whole film is built in service to it and i think a like a very masterfully constructed way um when it becomes very horrory especially in like the third act i i still enjoy it for what it is but it kind of feels like two movies being shoved together to me like they don't totally click in the same way and i think if i were an avid horror fan I would love that mashing up because yeah. I'm not an avid horror fan. A part of me was like, why did I even need that other stuff? Yeah. What is I could this have had a movie that, coda yeah. that is not important to what the movie I was watching? Yeah. Like I could have had a movie that is like a Stephen Miller approved. I can watch it and not have nightmares for the next month. Yeah. And I could have still gotten most of the benefit of Ari Aster's filmmaking. Uh, so, so that was kind of my feeling there. I totally get why he went the way that he did. I think for, like, a midnight screening in a theater, that is perfect. Like, again, me not being a fan of horror should not be used to, like, discount what it is that he accomplished with it. Yeah. I just think he is so good at things that are less horror than more, like, psychologically unsettling. Like, like this movie, the first half of it could basically be killing of a sacred deer or something. It's just, like shit is going on with a family and they're dysfunctional and we are watching that dysfunction and the tension is suffocating, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the... Yeah, I, we'll, we'll talk in spoilers about both of them, but there is a scene involving driving that just blew me the fuck away. I, yeah. I'm sure it blew everyone away in in the same manner. Um, and that being able to pull off that kind of, like... Like, I, like, I don't know, he's a conductor and he's, like firing all these different instruments at you at once and he can just make them all build to one sudden crescendo and then silent yeah. it, it it is very 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 well done that th that scene you're talking about i um this is the only time i've ever not finished my food at an alamo uh screening i and it's not that it it's it didn't gross me out i this scene happens and i covered my mouth and I held my mouth covered for about 10 straight minutes. And then I sort of just sat back down in my chair and I could not unthink of what all of that meant and yep. think about being in that situation yeah. and how you just ever recover from it. And it, yeah. it, it, it was one of the most like psychologically shocking moments I've ever seen on film. Mm. And I just like was like, it was masterfully yeah. done. You're like, and I, it, I only finished the top half of the muffin. I can't. <laughs> no, like literally I had like the, the crispy chicken thighs or whatever it was. And I, I, I had bitten one of them mm -hmm. and I, the guy came by at the end of the movie. He's like, Oh, should I box it up for you? And I was like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it definitely, that is great. And that family drama, I think is just so good. And it, it still would be horrific. Like that movie would yeah. still be, disturbing but i just think it would be uh i think it would be better than the end result with them all mashed together yeah yeah and, and, and i think i think too like the reason why 
that film. So obviously it made my like, I think it was my number five of, of the year. I don't remember exactly my placement, but I really love the film. And it was it was the combination of some imagery that stuck with me for a long time. And just the concept of what was happening, as I said, that really just stuck with me. And also just, I have not seen a film with some of those, the pain and like the hatred and the maybe love between family members, like this, like I, I'm still upset that Tony Collette didn't get the Oscar for, <laughs> for the role. Just like there are scenes where she is screaming at the dinner table with her family that like had tears yep. streaming down my face and just like wrecked me. Like I have never seen a family fight the way they do in this film, yeah. and it's like that. Like you could take that dinner table scene. And alone, it would have made this film make my list. And you could have taken that car driving scene and alone, it would have made it make my list. And just having both those in one film yeah. and having a film that overall is so strong and then playing with the visual elements of having her dealing with grief through making these little dioramas and having the dioramas show the events in like... Oh, the same unflinching detail that he does as a director. Yeah, yeah. and it, it just... It, it was ugh, it just blew my mind and even mm. it was funny like even literally spoilers for the first 10 seconds of this film i was watching this interior shot of this house and i'm like it looks weird to me what is going on and then when it's revealed to be a model of the house mm -hmm. which then turns to be the actual house i was yeah. like this is fucking rad yeah <laughs> no it, it definitely is and that i i totally agree with all the acclaim that tony collette got for that performance and Man, between this and Midsummer, like he's got some good screaming howls of grief in his movies. Like yeah. he really does. He gets like he finds actresses who can like really emote the like it goes beyond acting and becomes an almost like a primal howl of something. And yeah, that that shook me pretty hard in Hereditary. Yeah, yeah, and I think the. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll save it for more yep. spoiler conversation because I. I will make connections to that between sure. the two films. Yeah, yeah um, me too. But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, are, are, are we satisfied with... Uh, or I yeah, guess, what, so, so Verdicts, obviously it's a must-see for me. What would you give Hereditary? Yeah, I mean, if I weren't me, I would call it a must-see. Because I am a horror wuss, I would give it a, <laughs> like, a strong recommend with a caveat. I think there is a ton of great stuff going on in Hereditary. I don't think the more traditional horror elements, and I don't... I don't just mean the way people who criticize the end of the movie mean where they like, eh, I don't want to give spoilers, but there's some where they're like, they don't like the tone because of something else. For me, it's just like, I would have liked this movie without jump scares because I would have enjoyed the family drama much more if I didn't also know there's like this threat of creepiness lurking around every corner. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so for me, that's what would bump it down. Uh, as we will see in my next review, I am fine with people going all out in <laughs> in kind of ridiculous manners. So it isn't yeah. the over-the-topness, it's the horror aspect that I, I have trouble with. Cool. Um, well, we are now going to transition into Midsummer. Um, so let's take a listen to the trailer for Midsummer and then come back and give a mini-review of that. Mm. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. 
And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skål! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right, the sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate, I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. All right, so that was the trailer for Midsummer. It is the story of a sort of group of friends who are getting ready to um, take a trip to Sweden to go to this Midsummer festival. And um, the one of the characters' girlfriends has experienced some family issues, let's say, and uh, he is sort of... The, the relationship is already strained, and he decides to bring her along on the trip um, to hopefully kind of give her a chance to sort of relax and unwind in this place in Sweden. Um, and uh, they go off on this trip, and they kind of go to this commune um, where this midsummer festival is about to begin. And that festival uh, may end up being more than everybody bargained for. Mm. <laughs> Steven, what did you think of Midsummer? Um, I actually quite liked this movie, for the most part, I li- I liked what this movie was doing. Um, so I think, and and we'll get into similarities more specifically in the in the next part. Um, much like Hereditary, I think this movie is at its best toward the beginning when it is about human emotions being heightened by virtue of the filmmaking. Um, in this case, I think the the opening of Midsummer is. Perfect. I, I think it's masterful. It, it, it's basically the story of a Florence Pugh's character is living away from her family. She is in a relationship that is clearly like on its last legs, and so much is communicated very, very, very quickly in that opening about where she and Jack Rayner are, where they are not anymore. Um, 
and she suffers a tragedy and the, the filmmaking there. And keep in mind, this was the first anything I'd seen by Ari Aster is the opening of Midsummer, right? Yeah. I had not yet seen Hereditary. The way the camera moves around her family's house and like builds dread about place and just like anything could be lurking anywhere. And you you just know from the language of the filmmaking that something terrible is happening. Uh, that like, that really, really, really got to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I think too, what I we'll talk about it more, but what makes that so interesting is Michael in the periphery. And his <laughs> I th- you smiled at me because I thought you saw me recognize <laughs> that just happened. Um, we're not the only ones in our studio. So Steven just got spooked by somebody who is not inside the booth with us right now. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyways, um, we see the shot of the results about 15 minutes before we see the result. The, yep. the film opens with a preview of what we will learn 10 minutes later. Mm-hmm. Um, but without context, it seems completely benign. Um, yep. So that, that was an interesting little touch. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and then, like, for the beginning of the film, we're basically seeing this. It is a relationship horror. It's the horror <laughs> of, like, these two people are together by some strange necessity and a fear of hurting each other's feelings. Like Jack Rayner has basically, it is clear he wanted to break up with his girlfriend or at least all of his friends. <laughs> you, you mean clear by him saying, I want to break up with Yeah, her. and all, all of his friends <laughs> egging him on to do it. And he is just very like, he's blaming her on the phone and he's like trying to talk her off like, a proverbial ledge of like, no, 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 it's all in your head. Don't worry about it in a way that just felt like all too real. And like, we, so we see them together because she has suffered through something and he doesn't want to be a monster. So instead he settles for this like very uncomfortable gaslighty situation of like, no, everything's all in your head. We're great. It's fine. Don't worry. And he's planning on doing this trip to the Midsummer Festival and she knows he doesn't want her to go. And he knows that she knows. But they both are just playing this very uncomfortable game that I buy 100,000% would happen. <laughs> and the heightened aspect is all of his friends, basically. And the, yeah. like, the very dreary, monotonous tone by which they address this. It, so, like, <laughs> Here's the question. Do you think he was going to go to Sweden and break up with her by text? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would believe it. He definitely seems like a breakup by text kind of guy in this movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and so from there into this opening of like them actually going to Sweden, there's just so much like interesting. It, it's the same thing Hereditary did, where it's like taking a real human emotion that can feel suffocating and just like bringing it, making the world be that thing instead. And I feel like there's so much that goes on there where. Everything is a little drear. It's like bright and it's disorienting and it feels like it should be happy, but then you don't feel happy because nothing is quite right. Um, And there are psychedelic scenes where like eyes don't look quite right and I can't pinpoint why, but I know they don't. And like fingers are moving wrong and the grass is moving wrong. And like there's so much where it's like this, this idyllic thing, like a relationship where everyone's smiling and saying like, no, we love you. Everything's great. We're happy. And then the like nefarious truth underneath it. <laughs> I I thought that was like really, really, really interesting. Yeah. And I like from there, the movie basically becomes a 
not horror movie, like to my delight, I realized pretty quickly this was not going to be a movie of like many jump scares. That isn't the tone that it's trying to strike at all. Um, but more like a a kind of beautiful mingling of like things that look really pretty and things that are really disturbing and violent. And it's all just this kind of, I don't know, symphony to like emotional dissonance. And I, I really like it in principle. I think it is way longer than it has to be. I think if he trimmed like 30 or 40 minutes off it, he would have a much more tight film that still does everything that it needed to do. But I I was pretty happy with it. I, I think just the filmmaking, again, he is so good at, figuring out how things should look and feel that I I didn't really care whether or not it was building toward anything. So, so yeah, I was mostly pretty positive in this movie and I know you were not <laughs> as I see the look in your eyes. I was going to say, Steven, if you had to wager a guess what I thought of this film, what would you guess? But uh, you hated it. <laughs> so for, for about 35 to 45% of this film, I was, on board with everything this film was doing. I didn't... It. Some of those grieving moments and those hearkening to tragic events in somebody's life felt lesser than hereditary to me, but I was still sort of on board with what they stood and how the characters reacting for them. Um, Once the world started to unravel um, in the film, um, I actively distested this film. (laughs) Um... I have read a million articles. I have watched a million video essays on YouTube. Obviously, I'm being slightly facetious, but Ari Aster is an interesting person. He cares about doing things visually that I can, at face value, appreciate. The problem is this film works as a three-hour music video Mm. but lacks any sort of cohesive narrative at all in my opinion and i think that he was more concerned with this metaphor of a relationship crumbling and feeding in as much foreshadowing as possible as much symbology and like these things and like paint like the writing is literally on the walls for Mm -hmm. this film and there are long shots where it's panning over this is the next part of the narrative you're about to watch and all that stuff is striking visually and the way he's weaving these things together are interesting once again for a music video where it's supposed to be abstract no character behaves in any way resembling what a human being would do at all in any of these situations. Sure. The festival itself has no through line in what's actually happening. It's all metaphorical. I think this it's, is going to out me as a terrible person, but I kind of think Jack Rayner acts more like a human would behave than anyone else in this movie, I, even though he's clearly the the monster of the film also. At, at the... I... I... He feels like... And also, we there is a lot more stuff shot or written with him because he found out through interviews after the film was released that he was a monster. Yep. He thought that he was going to be a better character than he was, as at least from the quality of human being that he was. So I don't – yeah. So beyond that point, what I mean to say, though, is just that, like, Ari Aster is, is, is combining – things that are symbolically relevant from various cultures 
and taking these things and trying to create this strange cult uh, and this weird religion or whatever you want to call it. But there is no explanation for the festival or what's going on. There is uh, weird things where if you take it on its own face value at what the characters are saying it means, the characters who live in this commune, uh, the fact of what they're doing to the outsiders is in direct opposition to what it is they're saying their stated goal is for the ceremony they're performing. And there's just there's, there's so much stuff in this where it makes me angry mm. that I'm being forced to watch this for three freaking goddamn hours when there it, it just feels like a, a mishmash of all these different things. And um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it more yep. in spoilers, but it, it just it I, I found it incredibly grating once ever like when it was we're going here things are strange we're here to participate in the things stuff starting to get weird where is this going i was like yeah where is this going yeah give me more of this and then once it was like oh it, it's just weird shit you're just you're, you, you, you oh it's, yeah and then the thing with the yeah the, yeah yeah blood eagle cool gotcha and then it, it, it just became a thing where i was like you're just showing me stuff which so doesn't it- matter and it just made me angry. I, I totally get it. And I would have like bet lots of money the moment I ended this movie that like you would not enjoy it. Um, and, and I also don't think it's perfect. Like, like when I say he could have shaved 40 minutes off it, like that is for real. Um, yeah. I do think, though, there, there's an element of it was present in Hereditary, too, of taking what you think you know about where a scary movie is going and purposely flipping it on its head. In Hereditary... It was the idea of, oh, we are watching the the, the creepy little girl movie, right? Like, yeah. that's the thing we're doing. And then there's a moment when he's like, nope, that, that is not the story I want to give you anymore. Yeah. Um, and here, the like folk horror in general, it's kind of like you already know what is supposed to happen in this movie. You know everything. Nothing is going to be a surprise anymore. We're going to we're going to show it to you. We're going to telegraph it to you. You're going to go to this commune. Of course they're like pagan. Of course terrible things are going to happen. Of course there's going to be violence. Why am I stretching this out so much? And it's like intentionally deflating whatever tension there is there and trying to build something beautiful around it instead. And like that is a weird choice, and it is a very different way that he subverted it than he subverted Hereditary. But I do think there's, like, he has this drive to be, like, I know what the formula is, and now I'm going to break the formula, and I'm going to try to make you love it anyway. And I think your mileage with Midsummer is going to vary a lot depending on how much you're cool with, as you said, a music video, how cool you are with, like, just a vibe where the... The thing that is like different than a music video is all of the characters have been teed up already in this movie. So, yeah, of course, the the last hour and a half of it is basically like a <laughs> the long last an entire film worth of content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the second half of this movie is is all a kind of glorious, um, slow, demented something. But I think it is like informed by the characters that came before it, even as nobody then behaves the way a real person would behave. I, there, there's something to it. But I do, like Hereditary, I do think it's multiple movies kind of shoved together and he doesn't totally know how to fit them all there. But I admire the ambition. <laughs> like, I could have watched Midsummer and been like, oh, fuck that guy. I don't want to see what else he did. And instead I was like, oh, I got to see Hereditary now because... This guy definitely knows how to build a particular feeling. Yeah. 
Yep. And one I, of those feelings is tiredness. <laughs> so I, I think rather than beating around the bush, we should do the spoiler of both of them together. Well, we so got to do, really do the, we gotta do the verdict yep, first. Sure. Real fast. So your verdict for Midsummer. Um, I, I think it's recommend with a caveat. Um, this one is not as strong a recommend with a caveat as Hereditary because I do think like this movie tries your patience a lot more. It doesn't really have like tricks up its sleeve. It it is a what you see is what you get movie, and the fact that we like we may expect it to be more twisty is just like I don't know that that isn't the movie it wants to be. The movie it wants to be is a beautiful demented look at like the personification of a crumbling relationship and i feel like there's so much good in there especially in the first half of the film that i am happy to go along with the ride even if it is way longer than it has to be yeah i i would well first of all for me i feel like this film is a must avoid Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i think it like if you go in expecting what feels cohesive the way that hereditary does um you're not going to get that I feel like if you do want to have a fun experiment, maybe watch up until the cliff ceremony and then be like, skip to the end and look what's happened in the chapel (laughs) and be like, everything else in between is just a series of deaths that don't really matter or affect anything in the group and kind of go contrary to what the ceremony actually is. Um, But yeah, that that's kind of how I feel about it. But but yeah, so that is our spoiler-free reviews of both Hereditary and Midsummer. We are going to now get into spoilers um, just for uh, format's sake. We'll let the music fade up now, and then when the music fades down, we'll be in full-blown spoilers. Alright, everybody, here we are. This is combined spoilers for both Redditary and Midsummer. We're sort of gonna be diving into how Ariaster kind of pref- does his, how he tells his stories, how he visually presents his narratives, and, and you know, what these films um, gave to us, I guess, in different Intellectual ways. Intellectual asturbation. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and yeah, so, so we're gonna do it. Um, why don't we start by maybe comparing the the moments, uh, the driving scene, and Tony Collette's reaction to that, mm-hmm. and uh, what's his name? Wolf is his yeah, name. Alex Wolf. Alex yeah. Wolf. Um, how Alex Wolf re- responds to that situation mm-hmm. um, to the reveal of the sister's suicide slash murder of her parents yep. um, and how that is revealed yep. and how um, fighting with my family reacts to it. Yeah, Florence Pugh. I, I mean, I think you, like, like you said it all right there, the real, the through line that both of these movies share very strongly is like in the intense agony of grief and the way it can spin you wildly out of control or numb you or both, right? Yeah. Like, like that is the suffocating thing that he is interested in in both these movies. Like, like after the daughter is decapitated, like fucking decapitated in Hereditary, Alex Wolf shuts down. He numbs himself because what else can he do, right? How can you even live after this situation? You just got to 
keep moving forward and don't think about anything. Uh, and Tony Collette is this like howling, feral sort of grief after that moment, right? That she is literally like she discovers in the morning. We wait a whole night for her yeah. to find out. And, th- and that's the thing too is it was already horrific. He's driving. You see a pole. You hear a sound. You see. I, I don't even remember if you actually see blood. But he kind of, I don't even remember if he turns around or if he just thinks about, like, I know exactly what happened. I know what happened. And then he just drives home. He gets out of the car. He walks into the bed. The camera diffs with him as he falls into the bed. And he doesn't sleep. He just stares blankly because he's fucking traumatized. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, like, I, in that moment, it's, it, it, it. It can't be, but it feels like an unbroken take of him getting out of the car, going into bed, and just laying there while we wait for the sun to rise. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I'm just thinking about if I was driving that car and that happened, there is no knock, 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 mom, I accidentally decapitated my sister, and she's gone. (laughs) Also, the body's in the car out front. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, It's like he... it's. You know, when you watch other narratives and somebody dies accidentally and then maybe two friends try to cover it up. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, You are like you're thinking like, oh, okay, well, it was an innocent death, but you just didn't know how like you were like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. This is a different kind of thing. It's it's like you can't even admit to the universe that it just happened because it's so inconceivable. Mm And you like you there's you you don't even know what to do. Like you could kill yourself right there and just be done. But like you, you you're just it's not, it's not even that you're numb. It's that you don't even you can't comprehend it. Right. It's not even the realm of possibility of having it happened. Mm-hmm. You're just there and you don't know what to do. So you sit there and you might be thinking about it. You might not be thinking about it. You might be worried about how somebody can react. You might be trying to understand how it even happened. You might be trying to rationalize that if your mom didn't make you take her to the party, it never would have happened. Mm -hmm. You might be trying to rationalize that if you didn't try to get high, she wouldn't have been eating the cake with the nuts in it and she wouldn't have had the allergic reaction. There's like a million – like you cannot conceive of all the iterations of that evening that could have prevented that from happening or how – any like it just – it it. It it just overloaded my brain. Yep. And in the theater, as I said, I cupped my hand over my mouth and was shocked, shocked. And just watching it happen. And then you never see it. You just hear Tony Collette get up. You hear her go out the front door and you hear her reaction. Yep. There is no way you could have watched her re- react to that mm. in real time and it would have worked. But knowing what is happening, you imagining what she's seeing, and you just having to experience it through looking at him in bed, not being even present anymore, knowing the strain the family's already in. (laughs) And it's just like... And then the cherry on top is, I'm going to show you the head now. But even even that, I had no reaction to that mm -hmm. because I was still destroyed from just thinking about the reality of what had just taken place and how it was presented to me. It, and and it, it feels like 10 minutes straight of mm-hmm. that scene of him not sleeping and then her discovering it and then crying. And it's just that just wrecked me. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is the, the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree. That that was great. So you gave such a good build up to that scene. I can't justify why like I really loved the midsummer version of it too. Like in the beginning of the film where Florence Pugh has just learned that her sister killed herself and killed her mother and father along with her and she lets out this like just like a howl of anguish this like scream and Jack Rayner is like it cuts he's trying to console her and there's nothing he can do right there's yeah. nothing anybody can do and he is the numbness that Alex Wolf is basically but for a different reason he is like a third party now and he's detached and he's just like hampered by grief now where he can't do anything yeah and, and he, I, he 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 looks he is acting in that moment the way that like uh Charlie Theron and Tully is acting when the baby's just crying and she she mm-hmm. like he has no power to do anything yeah he's just being present because that's his role mm-hmm. and there's nothing he can do she is just experiencing what she's experiencing and, yep. and that's it yeah yeah so i i think those through lines are both like really strong and i think in general there's a lot so i, I had jotted down just some thematic well, things that the film share I, I, I don't know how you want to go through them but but before we move on can i tell you why that scene felt lesser to me sure and it's gonna sound horrible <laughs> <laughs> but so her performance and her wailing is as good as it could and needed to be contextually we the audience are experiencing the gruesome reveal in a way that she did not receive that information and did not experience it mm-hmm. so there's an inherent even though the tragedy is three people dying versus one person dying. The wailing is coming from a person who got a call and said, I wanted to tell you that your sister and parents are dead. Your sister ran a hose inside the house and they all asphyxiated due to CO2 poisoning or whatever, right? Mm. She received the information in a clinical way and she went into a manic state in, in a, like a reaction to it. Mm. She did not drive home from wherever she lives, see the car in the garage, see the hose, run in going no, 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 and then discover the bodies and see her sister with the duct tape and the sure, mask yeah, and the so hose. The, the horror is different. So, it's, it's, it, so the tragedy is 100% real. If you're doing pure death math, it's heightened. But there is... I can see the strings and the strings lessen my reaction to it because I'm watching him weave together imagery and a situation that is tragic, but the reality of the reveal to the character who is experiencing it is less than what we see. Tony Collette wakes up, sees the car, sees damage on the car, sees blood on the car, runs in and sees her headless daughter mm-hmm. in the back of the car. Yeah. That is a wholly different experience. I completely agree. I don't think the I don't think Midsummer wants it to be the centerpiece the way that it is in Hereditary either. It it's the context. It happens in like the first fifteen minutes yeah. of the movie. You know, it is just teeing it up. And I think it's interesting to hear you watching Hereditary first and having so much time to live with it, and then coming in with expectations to Midsummer. Whereas for me, when I flipped it, Midsummer was my first time seeing him explore grief, and to me, I was like. 
this director Damn, is crazy. Yeah, yeah, this director is phenomenal. Like yeah, I can't yeah. believe he managed to like play so many emotional strings in just a few minutes at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um and like like he's definitely doing different things. Like if if your claim rather than just stacking them up against each other was because Florence Pugh didn't witness this, I don't buy that reaction. I would disagree with that because I think that manic state, that shock, that howl, that scream of like all the things I've ever been afraid of have finally come true. I think that is a thousand percent believable, even with a clinical phone call. Like so, I would so, still so believe that that would happen. Do you think without establishing her as sort of emotionally unstable prior to like he establish her, establishes her as as having problems dealing with emotions already? And do you think if she seemed, for lack of a better term, normally able to deal with emotions i'm doing air quotes right now do you think that that reaction would feel different or do you think because we've established her as not being able to handle things in general that i don't know it it feel there's something not icky but there's something that he's doing where he's like i'm going to give you like a character that's just tormented already and then put her in a situation that's like the worst possible outcome of what she would think of like it, it it Given the context of what he presented to us in the first film, this feels semi-masturbatory, right? Mm. Um, and it just, I don't know. It seems like he's like, I'm good at grief. Check me out. <laughs> no, yeah, like I didn't I didn't feel that. Like to me, I think there's even a question of whether she was actually having problems with her emotions before or if it was gaslighting because she was fucking right about everything she was afraid of. Yeah. And she was just in this relationship where the guy is making her feel like a burden for feeling the things that she feels. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I, I completely buy it no matter what her state is, is that like, like what do you do when you are basically alone and you suddenly learn that everyone you care about has died in a horrible way? Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I would do, right? Apparently like, you go to Sweden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. M- months later, like, like I don't know. Do you cry? Do you scream? I, I feel like wh- whatever the realism, like Ari Aster wants grief to be let out. He wants it to be this like feral animal yeah. thing that has to get out. And I, I thought it was a really powerful way to open a movie. So like maybe if I flip the order that I watch them and I think of him as the grief guy, then it feels too easy. But that is definitely not how I felt watching it at yeah. all. It just the context of like if so he has said himself that when he was working on this film, he was going through a bad breakup mm-hmm. and that that is like inherently within the DNA of this film. And I think you could have this film where their relationship is perfect and they're just going on a trip to Sweden and everything that happens once they arrive there is exactly the same as this movie. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't like basically he's using grief as a reason to push her into going to a trip that she was only not going on because he wanted to write the boyfriend as somebody who wanted to leave her. Mm -hmm. And I think that if the boyfriend didn't want to leave her, she could have been going all along and you wouldn't have to have the tragedy as the reason for her going. And you would not change a single thing about the rest of the story. Uh, but I think the whole movie, the whole movie is about that feeling of being like unmoored and not able to put a handle on your surroundings and like not being able to, not being able to figure out how to rectify the 
the bright and the pretty and the beautiful with the horrific and the terrible and the disorienting. And I feel, I feel like it'd be a very different movie if she weren't going in with that emotional state where the, the horror is twofold. Like there's the, there's the, the community that she's going into and like the, the violence that is happening there. But to be honest in Midsummer, she is almost never really horrified by the things that are happening in front of her. Um, I mean, there's the scene when people jump from the cliff and every other guy there has a kind of vocal re- reaction of like, oh, holy shit, what the fuck, what's going on? Doesn't and, she like run away and throw up? Yeah, I mean, she feels sick, but it, from her, like she spent the movie already having these like aftershocks of grief where she has trouble handling things that remind her of the tragedy that happened to her. But she never seems to like, resist it or fight it or try to stop it in the way that other people are doing i feel like for her like the primary the primary conflict of the movie is the she i mean it's said in the movie like she isn't being carried like she has this thing she has this grief and she's been bottling it up inside trying to keep it in because this relationship she's in has told her like this thing I have is bad and it's a burden and it's going to destroy him. And the only way I can make it better is to live as if nothing were going on anymore. And I feel like that, like the suffocation of that, I feel like is a through line in all of the crazy shit that happens in Midsummer because she is there. And I feel like the audience is with her in that kind of like stifled emotional thing. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't know I think Midsummer would be a very boring movie if not for the context of the grief and the bad relationship that were infused with it. Because I feel like then it would just be a, the cult is doing crazy things. Oh, look, they did crazy things. The end. And I feel like instead, like the DNA of the movie is infused with the, the disorienting feeling of like not being able to let something out that you have to let out. So, so even... So let me revise my 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 supposition or whatever. But like, so basically, imagine the grief is still gone, mm-hmm. but the relationship is still in crumbles, and the Swedish friend, who is sort of like, he he's that he's he's weirdly too too forward with her. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm so happy it is you that is coming on the trip, and mm-hmm. like, there's very much a a what in any non horror film would be this sudden fling that is evolving between these two characters that is causing her to reevaluate the relationship she's in that's already in crumbles Mm. and you could still have this crumbling relationship metaphor going through the story but it wouldn't require her sister to do like a a murder suicide i i I agree but but i think the second thing the movie is doing and it's really captured in a few there's a few pivotal scenes the the biggest one being when she starts crying because to be honest, not the right reason to cry. Like Jack Rayner has clearly been drugged by an actual spell so he can fuck this girl while a bunch of people watch. He's not in control right now. She knows he's not in control right now, but she has just walked in on him doing that thing. And now she is in agony and like everything comes out and it's not just her sadness of the relationship. I think it's the, it's the tragedy. It's everything else in her past. She is screaming, and she's now with this weird community that scream with her. Yeah. And I think that fits with what that guy, Pele, I think his name was, says before about, like, you know, your boyfriend, is he's nice to you. He's there, but is he carrying you, right? Is he, like, sharing with you? Because in our community, 
we spread the feeling around. We all feel what everyone is feeling. And I think, like, for her, the grief, the thing that she's letting out in the end that the whole community is feeling with her is a combination of the relationship ending and of the grief that she's feeling about her family. And it it isn't perfect the way that it's glued together, but I think both components have to be there for it to kind of work the way that it works. So, so do you think if you were grieving and unleashing all of your emotions in this guttural cry and a group of people from this commune started crying with you, do you think as a human experiencing that, that it would not feel the way when you pretend to cry when a baby's crying and you mock them until they stop crying? Like, I I feel that like you... Like, once again, it's all about strings and metaphors versus reality. Like, I feel that these things work in a video essay or a written essay unpacking what all all the symbolism means within Mm -hmm. uh, Midsummer. But I don't think they work for real if you apply them to the real world. So I, I agree. And that is a wrench in the idea is I thought the scene was actually pretty moving. So I was yeah, willing yeah. to, I was willing to take away whatever realist lens I have and be like, I love the idea of this. Yeah. But of course, in the context of the movie, they aren't actually sharing her sadness. Like they don't know what she is grieving yeah. and they clearly aren't empathizing with everyone because they just murdered like half the people she was yeah. with and they clearly didn't care about that. But they also just finished sharing an orgasm yep. <laughs> with the people in the, yeah. in the barn. Yeah, so. yeah, they, they, they shared everything. So I, I think it can only be taken on the abstract level. And yeah. I was just at that point fully embracing the abstract of whatever he was doing yeah. there. You um, drank the weird pube juice or yeah. whatever. And you were like, I'm, I'm here. I'm in it. I'm, yeah. I'm here for the win. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I, but I do, I don't know. I, I really, I loved that idea. And I think this movie doesn't, it doesn't know where we're supposed to be at the end of it. Like, like, okay, we'll, we'll talk again about hereditary too, because there's a very similar arc that Alex Wolf goes on in hereditary and Florence Pugh goes on in midsummer. Alex Wolf has been this kind of numb sideline character for most of Hereditary after he kills his sister, right? He is, he's barely there. He's just trying to hang on. He doesn't get much of a personality anymore. Tony Collette is the one getting everything out of her system and she's going crazy and she's feeling like grief fester and she's trying to solve something and do something. And in the end of the movie, the, the, sadness the inherited sadness takes control and it it basically like it becomes a part of alex wolf and there's a scene in the movie the end where tony collette has sawed her head off already um his sister's decapitated body is there too all the dead bodies decapitated are like bowing in service to payment to service of who who the hell cares who payment is like i never looked up that mythology but it it's this thing that is like looking the bad in the eye and accepting it and alex wolf like smiles right and that and that is his like his arc is the the sadness has become a thing that you like embrace rather than run away from or try to like fight and florence Pugh, i feel like it takes it a step further where she is like 
she's a character who's kind of like reserved and trying to hide the way she feels and holds it in so she doesn't have to lose the one relationship that's dangling, hanging by a thread already. And by the end of the movie, she has embraced the horror and the evil and she's like decided to burn her boyfriend to to murder everyone to become the the princess of flowers or whatever they call they call that character so do you think she has decided this or is she just sitting sewn into a blanket of flowers watching it take place unable to do anything because she is also drugged slash in in whatever state that she's in like she's she she is like for all intents and purposes knighted as the queen of of this festival mm-hmm. but she she didn't say and now that i'm queen take all my friends and put them in the building and burn them in the body of a bear sure she she is given the choice right of who to burn in the end and it's between Jack Rayner and some other guy. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know who has agency in this movie at this point. Who doesn't? But definitely the so just like Alex, Alex Wolf doesn't have agency when he is like yeah. like becomes the new body of King Payment or whatever. Yeah. But there's still the feeling like she's still at the end of all that watches the burning and just like the camera ended on Alex Wolf kind of smiling as he like greets this terrible thing that is happening the camera focuses on her and she starts to smile as she watches the house burn so i i, I don't know i feel like ariasta really likes this idea of like let it all out you yeah. know like embrace it become the terrible thing put all the horrific images you need to like get it out of your system and she's like smiling in that moment maybe because she is finally free yeah like she's no longer stuck in this thing she's no longer trapped by the thing she is she has literally released the last of the stuff that has been holding her down yeah and she's just able to just go on now she she can start afresh i guess yeah yeah so i, I don't know i i liked I, I I again I like the idea of it more than I do when you consider every scene in isolation because there are a bunch of things that don't totally fit with that with that story that it feels like Ariaster just put in because he wanted to have color in his movie he wanted to have disturbing images you know like like there's a bunch of things that he really likes like there's the kind of body dysmorphia thing that he's into where like people have something off about them right it's way more heightened in midsummer because there's the character who's the result of incest who is like barely recognizable you know but he likes that that disfigurement thing i don't know where that fits with anything else um that's like one of the things that bothers me so much about him using all this imagery it's not that like he's using incest and inbred characters as a way to tell stories like do what you're gonna do but for me it feels like so most of the most of the uh, rituals within this ceremony are about the old leaving this plane to make way for the new. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the two elders take their own lives because they have reached whatever. There's yeah, there's seventy five. Beginning or spring, midsummer, fall back, spring forward, yeah. whatever it is, and then they're at they're they're basically in winter, and there is no reason to continue living. Mm-hmm. They die. Um, theoretically giving passing themselves off in some sort of essence so that the new births that will will be made during these ceremonies can grow up with the history of the elders mm-hmm. or I, I, whatever right yeah. we'll just take that for granted 
This is a society that has built within it the need for sacrifice to help spawn new blood. So, why, like, the, so basically, if, if the people in the village are fine to kill themselves to spring new life, why do they need to kill these foreigners as part of this ritual to add to the group? Like, they're like, because what the priest basically says is, and this time we're adding some foreigners to the mix. So basically he implies that, like, normally they would just kill themselves. Like, mm-hmm. six people would decide to kill themselves um, to die a burning in this flame to, to spawn new life. They explain that within this culture there's a lot of inbreeding. Inbreeding creates these children that are better able to be oracles between the whatever worlds, but they also want not inbred children. So mm-hmm. they often bring in foreigners, um, which everyone in this group, with the exception exception of the girl, was talking about how much ass they were gonna get when they were in <laughs> yeah. when they were in Sweden. They're already wanting to procreate with these girls, right? I mean, they're not what they want. Yeah, they're coming specifically to get laid. They could, without having to put their pubes in pies and and put like grass trimmings in, in, in the, <laughs> without even doing that, they could get exactly what they want. So there has to be a reason to kill these people when there's no need to. Some of these characters come up with their own plans, which involve disrespecting. Like, two of the people want to take what's happening there and take it to the outside world. Mm -hmm. One of them wants to touch a sacred book. One of them pees on a tree. There are things that make them deserving to die for this cult. Like, I'm not saying they should die for those actions. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that, like, I could see why people in this culture want to kill them. But that's not necessary. And then... I think that if you have a ritual in which six people ritualistically agree to be killed in order to uh, facilitate the passing of life to newborn things to raise up your culture to be better, you wouldn't have people die against their will and participate in the ceremony. If it takes you willingly sacrificing yourself in order to accomplish a goal... You being killed against your will does not facilitate that goal. Sure. I, like, I think I, you're thinking with the wrong part of your brain for this The brain part of movie. my brain? Yeah. I, I, I just Logic does not exist within this universe. It's just imagery, which would be cool. It's like I love the National Treasure films because they take iconography that exists within our world and create an explanation for why that iconography exists in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. It's done poorly in The Da Vinci Code. That's why I don't like that film. Mm-hmm. This film takes arguably crazier, more interesting imagery, which doesn't exist in our actual world. It's all made up for the sake or borrowed from different cultures and pieced together into this Frankenstein idea of all this stuff. And then he forgets to make up an explanation for why everything is happening. There are little tiny pieces that branch to each other, like, hmm, pubes in pie makes you horny. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's... It, like that stuff is like okay well he wanted to fuck you anyway so what is the point <laughs> like it just it's it's very it's just very very strange and i can't put aside the part of my brain that actually processes the visual information i get and just enjoy it but like i like i said i've watched like a 10 minute thing where it's like he has this character that's an up arrow and she has this r that's backwards and then that means she is blah 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 and that means his arrow thing and then you see on this rock where the two people kill themselves that there's the r and there's the arrow and they're mm-hmm. both putting blood on them and then the symbol there's a symbol that means this and then it's like i'm like cool 
that sounds like he tried real hard to do that. And then I go, but what does it all mean? Fuck all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I, I feel like the symbols are enough on their own. And like, like okay, the, you're talking about the, the logic of why they would murder outsiders. And I, I don't totally remember if every time they come, they manage to bring outsiders too. I, I forget if that is implied or not. Because clearly... Pele really wants to bring them, and it's clear that like his mission sort of was to get outsiders, just like his brother yeah. got outsiders. Like, so I don't know that this is the first time that has happened, or if that is a part of the ritual too. I'm not sure. Um, but the general feeling of like, the, like I feel like what we're seeing with them is they embrace death in a way that is weird and foreign to our sensibilities, right? Yeah. And they do that on their own, like when they all watch the people diving from the cliff and Ariaster, much like the head in the last movie, focuses on the face getting bashed yeah. in. Also, that guy's a real, real dumb. If you want to kill yourself, you do not go feet first. No, nope. yeah, you definitely don't. <laughs> he fucked up. Um, I like that there's just a giant fucking Yeah, has hammer. he not done this before? Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the, the part, is the woman face first on the rock, the man feet first on the ground, and then the hammer is there. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it all goes hand in hand. But but either way, like, so yeah, they, they embrace death among themselves, and they also pass death around, around willy-nilly to the other people, right? They are totally happy to be all smiles and murder these these trespassers, these people who have come and done things that they weren't supposed to do. Yeah. All of those combined still present a kind of second path for Florence Pugh, as opposed to basically she can either live her life as it is where the tragedy that happened to her is unthinkable. She just has to bottle it up forever, or she can embrace this different life where death is given a purpose and a reason and it is like shared and looked upon in a fond way. And I feel like just like Payman in the last movie where like everyone is dying, right. And they're being murdered just so they can like bow down in the right formation and build an altar in the treehouse, Like she is getting a chance to like look at death as a thing that is like beautiful and fine and good and like refashioning it into something that fits in a bigger picture. And I feel like that general idea, even if like the logic of why the cult does what they do, like, like in what fucking cult movie does the logic of why they do what they do matter? You know, like, I mean, the logic of the Manson family doesn't, baby, the Manson (laughs) family doesn't make sense. Like their own logic of why they do things. Well, I mean, they were fucking insane people who mm. did crazy shit. Like they thought they were going to go to the desert and live in a hole. Um, thanks to a Beatles song, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, I, I, I you can't apply logic and reason to them, but this is a whole religion founded on like, a sacred book of teachings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I yeah. Yeah. Like to me, the, the, the thematic elements were way more foregrounded. And I feel like the, the why of like, why do pre- people act a certain way in a moment? It's like, this is not that movie. This movie is definitely not going to give you that. Oh yeah. And yeah. I do feel like there's just a, it, it's interesting to compare them even just on stylistic grounds. Like there's so many things that happen in both movies. Like, there's abrupt transitions, time to a sound effect. That's like a big thing in Hereditary and a big thing here. The camera kind of like snakes around places. Like the opening house in Midsummer is a lot like the house in Hereditary as this like place where evil could be lurking at every corner. Uh, both have scenes where a camera turns upside down in a hallway or a road and shows you this like disorienting version of the world as it's like tilted. They both try to show you like the feeling of like what it's like to lose your grip on reality 
and like how do you know if you're crazy or if the world is crazy um I, 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 I feel like there's just a lot there that he is playing with in both of them. And he really also is, like, very interested in men and women and in particularly in, like, men being pieces of shit. And <laughs> grief as, like, a particularly, like, a female cross to bear and, like, how do they deal with it where the men in their life try to kind of, like, downplay it or negate it. Like, yeah. like the, hu- the husband in Hereditary is pretty much his whole role is, like, I, I don't believe you. You got to stop feeling this way. You got to stop acting like this. You're acting crazy. No, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to do anything about it. And Jack Rayner is taking it to another extreme here where he's like, let's pretend nothing even happened. I'm going to completely stonewall you whenever you try to approach any subject that's real. Yeah. And and then like both of those ending in like, I don't know, in, in like embracing something else to try to numb the pain of grief, like worshiping king payment at the altar of death or like worshiping this crazy swedish cult that is gonna like give death meaning like i don't know i feel like he's playing in a sandbox of a bunch of like really really interesting things and i don't know what personal shit he has to get out but it feels like he hasn't gotten it all yet (laughs) and somewhere there's like a cult and death and grief and eye holes being cut out of a face and like all these things that are just like haunting him that he puts on the screen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in it. Like I'm, I'm still interested even after two movies. Yeah. I, I guess for me, like one of the reasons I wanted you to see both films um, and not just talk about Midsummer's, I feel like, I feel like he got a bunch of praise for the first film and was like, nah, you haven't seen nothing yet. And then, mm-hmm. like, went full bore into his next yeah. film and just, like, was, like, took all the wrong parts of Hereditary and just took them up to 11. And I think, for me, I can't I can't watch it in a vacuum. I can only see the elements he's carrying forward from Hereditary, mm-hmm. and I don't like what he's doing with them. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, it, it's, it just frustrated me and maybe if the film was 45 minutes shorter, I would just be like, oh, I didn't like it as much as Hereditary. And mm-hmm. that would be like the worst thing I could say about it. But because he extends all of this stuff that I don't like for so long and goes for it, like just like love or to hate it, he is just he's knocking whatever it is out of the park. Yeah. <laughs> and I just it, it feels like I want more tactical uh execution of the imagery and what i got was just like check out all these books i read about friggin north mythology and like (laughs) runes and shit did did you like naked old people for two seconds in a dark hallway how about naked old people everywhere yeah it just it just seems it just seemed it was one of those things where i knew pretty far before the ending that the film was not going to bring it around for me mm-hmm. and i was just i was just there and having to finish out my my time in the theater and it 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 just it never really could bring me back um with what it was doing and i'm happy for her journey as a character and her ability to let go of everything that's been holding her down but i i also don't know where like the elders ran all the stuff in this. Who teaches her to do the ceremonies now if she's like the queen till next? Like, they just, it, I, I can't watch a film like this and not be like, all right, explain to me this religion. Let's pretend like I wanted to join. 
make me believe it. Like <laughs> there's nothing he can do to make me feel like there is a a full fledged idea about who these people are. Dude, if if Alamo Drafthouse served mushroom tea to go along with this movie, you'd it be all might, about it. It might be a different film. <laughs> But yeah, I'd be like the movie was crazy. I couldn't feel my fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any uh, any more things? No, I I think I think we got, I think we got it. 